0: Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. hey welcome back everybody today we have a great guest as we continue our series of looking at the martial arts that includes everything jujitsu muay thai whatever it may be but today we're actually going to be looking at chokes rear naked chokes and we continue the series of acting asking professionals who are also involved in martial arts we've had a physicist that was last week's guest we've had other medical doctors we had a psychologist and now, again, we have an associate professor of emergency medicine, as well as an emergency medicine physician and toxicologist, Dr. Samuel Stellflug That's S-T-E-L-L-P-F-L-U-G. You might want to definitely look him up and type in chokes when you look him up on Google. He's got a new uh, article about three years old called No Established Link Between Repeated Transient Chokes and Chronic Trauma- Traumatic Traumatic encephalopathy related effects it's a tough one for me to say on the show because dangers of mixed martial arts and the development of, of chronic traumatic traumatic encephalopathy it's a fascinating article we're going to try to break that down we're going to break not only the rear naked choke we're going to break down other chokes the guillotine chokes we're going to talk about the carotid artery do people really pass out why do they we'll find out more about that in a little bit as well and we'll be discussing i think i'm going to try at least three or four different chokes and, and see what Doctor Selfluk has to say about them i think we got the google plata and the guillotine as i mentioned and uh triangle choke and we'll see how those all operate before we get started you know what to do folks make sure to share subscribe hit that like button you know we like it let's not waste any more time welcome to the show dr Selfluk. welcome sir
1: thanks a lot for having me
0: thank you for being here again yeah, this is so fascinating um uh, <clears throat> We bounce back and forth, right? We bounce back from MMA fighters like Don Fry to Boss Rudin, all of a sudden to professionals who've delved into the world of martial arts. And, and there's, still, there's still a dearth of research in a lot of the areas of martial arts, whether it be psychological, sociological, or medical, physiological, and things of that nature. But my first question to you is what motivated you to become a martial artist? Because I know you actually have a black belt, I remember.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, I uh, I didn't start as a kid. I didn't do anything uh, with combatives as a kid. I was more of a like a traditional ball sport um, type of type of guy. And in my late teens, I got exposed just sort of on accident um, in the in the few years after the UFC had hit. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, I had a couple friends who were uh, getting involved on a on some level, at least in jujitsu and some Muay Thai, a little bit of like local small town MMA stuff, convinced me to go to a gym, uh, in the town I grew up in where there was a blue belt who owned and ran a gym. Um, and wow. that was at that time in the, in the mid to late nineties, that was, uh, uh, fairly normal out outside of, uh, major Metro areas, blue, blue and purple belts running gyms. But, uh, I got exposed to it at that time. Uh, trained a little bit. And then about a year later, I was in a situation that I was um, close enough to a gym that I could get to by borrowed car or bus and started training in earnest. Um, And that was, I guess, 2000. Um, So I was sort of like second or third wave in, Hmm. in this country anyway, um, training jujitsu. And once I started, um, it was just one of those things I couldn't not do um, like a lot of people, um, you get started and you either don't like it or you like it. And um, I liked it and never stopped.
0: That's interesting. You mentioned that For a side note here, the blue belts and the purple belts. Because um, I'm wondering, there's been discussions with, with other MMA fighters that have had on the show, whether or not that's going to stick around. Because nowadays we've had these competitions, especially the, Eddie. I don't know if you've ever seen the Eddie Bravo Invitationals. Mm-hmm. And you've had blue belts and purple belts taking out black belts, um, and it's kind of interesting <laughs> because that's kind of changed the uh, importance of the belt ranking. It's fascinating to watch.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and belt ranking is always. I mean, it's a it's a benchmark, but um, it's it's always a little bit subjective, even in in uh, very strict grading systems, depending on the martial art. But um, grappling is grappling, um, and so if you have someone come into jujitsu who has a wrestling background or a longtime judo background and they're just getting used to jitsu and they're a blue belt there are um there are fighting situations where they're going to know way more than the person standing in front of them even if they're graded much higher in in jitsu. um and that's that's just how it is um
0: now you were jujitsu before you became a, a medical dog.
1: Yeah, um, that uh, the the first time I was exposed to it, I was an undergraduate um, before uh, before even uh, medical school. So I've been doing jujitsu a lot longer than than I have been doing medicine.
0: UFC was not in your future, I see.
1: No, it <laughs> is funny. I I thought about it. I trained. I mean, at that that early time, the point of jujitsu, especially the gym that I um, was training in, in in Milwaukee at that time was a very fight oriented gym. I mean, it was all training to, to be able to, um, to be able to fight. I mean, that was sort of the point um, take down game and take down defense and top pressure and things that are applicable uh, in the MMA world. And um, a couple people from, from the gym, including the, the guy who ran the club was a an active MMA fighter in that small community in, in, um, in Milwaukee at that time. Um, and um, uh, and yeah, it, it, uh, it was something that I definitely thought about and I was training Muay Thai at the time too. Um, it became apparent though, that it was not the most congruent with my, with my career in terms of active studying and trying to uh, push through to get into medical school and stuff. Um, getting kicked in the head was, was not something that I felt was a, a great choice overall.
0: That's interesting. Cause I, I can tell obviously the the fire never went out. I mean, doing research in that area (laughs) proves the point that you still have a passion for it. Right. For sure. Interesting. Now, what made you look at chokes? I mean, there's a lot of things we could look at, especially as an emergency medicine physician. I guess guess chokes would be a good one. I can see concussions and things of that nature, but what made you look at chokes?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I, um, um, at the time I started looking into it, um, with any sort of seriousness, which is maybe five years ago or so now, um, I, I was, uh, I had been doing jujitsu for 15 plus years at that point. And, uh, uh the research side of my medical career, uh, led me down a path of participating in a bunch of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular research, um, things, things impacting, um, the, the heart's capability to pump blood and things impacting the brain's ability to, to get blood fed to it. And we had some large animal models and a bunch of other research in that realm. Um, and at the same time, I was starting to get uh, a feel for sort of the bro science behind um, choking in, in, the, in the realm of, uh, of submission grappling. Um had heard a lot about how chokes work, why they work, why people go unconscious, how long it takes, and all that stuff. And just as a sort of passive curiosity, I started looking up the research on uh, on that that whole realm, trying to figure out what we actually knew and what we what we didn't know. And um coinciding with this, I obviously, in the emergency department, which is where I spent a lot of my time, I would see choking and strangulation of victims. Um, and that obviously is a pretty, a pretty, um, pretty at risk population because a lot of it is either sexual assault or domestic abuse and those sorts of things. And realize that even in that realm, we practiced as though we knew what we were talking about, but there's very little real research. It's, it's obviously predictably something very difficult to study prospectively. Um, and, and, Uh, especially in today's age we can get into this but there is prospective research on on it but um, from kind of a long time ago when uh, there wasn't such uh, strict uh, ethics community and um, and IRB restrictions and those sorts of things Mm. but anyway I I started looking into what research we actually had and realized that there's just not much not in the realm of sport not in the combatives world where um, there has been a lot of discussion about vascular neck restraint um, as a part of the use of force continuum, and not in the realm of medical care for strangulation victims in um, in hospitals. And um, having discovered that, I, I, I started going down a path of trying to fill in some of the gaps that we had in that research, and that is uh, still ongoing today
0: fascinating yeah i'm not going to go into the ethics thing but yeah it's amazing what we learned way back when when they're allowed to do certain things but obviously some things weren't appropriate um it makes me wonder i guess i got a couple of thoughts in my head here i'm trying to see how i frame it as a question because so i know certain disciplines now are starting to see the acad- academics getting involved and uh and it's always interesting to see academics getting involved into certain genres. I mean, the image of a professor that we used to have is far from what it is today sometimes. Uh, you as an associate professor, you don't usually associate somebody with a jiu-jitsu background or Muay Thai, right. myself as a psych professor as well. You know, it's just most of my colleagues have no clue. And this is not an offense again or a pejorative comment towards them, it's just Interesting how that profession now is slowly starting to creep in. I mean, it's still way far away in the martial arts world. And I don't even know. I guess that's one of the questions I would ask. It it can provide a lot of insight, but, I, but I'm but i also seeing people, and I don't know if one of your articles, was a resp- it was a response to somebody else's research, and I don't know if those individuals ever participated in martial arts, because that makes a difference, I think. I don't know if I'm right or wrong.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. So I, there are a couple letters to the editor out there. The one um, uh, one that you referenced from 2019, and another one um, that was in response to a a study that was published in the in the journal Brain Injury, and that was actually a study out of Mayo in Rochester. Um, I know that a couple of the authors on that study are are a part of the martial arts world. Uh, one of them is a long time's uh, um, cage side doc. And, uh, and another one is a, is a uh, professor, um, of jujitsu and, um, and that commentary was kind of interesting that back and forth. Um, but it was, it was related to the same thing. Um, they, they did a prospective study looking at a sideline cognitive testing modality and how athletes did after either knockouts or non knockouts, which, um, was mostly chokes. And that, that was a sort of an interesting back and forth that we wrote a letter to the editor about.
0: Would you agree that there might be a lot of confounding variables to that, especially in a kind yeah. of research like that?
1: Yeah. In fact, that study, it was, it, it was a great idea. Um, they, they used a, a platform that's fairly well established in the concussion world to have some merit, the King Devic,
0: mm. um
1: test platform, which is essentially a, a, it's a platform where athletes are asked to identify numbers in a sequence as accurately and fast as possible. So it essentially tests I saccade ability to, to have the cognition to recognize the number and then the ability to express the number verbally. Um, and you get a score based on, on how well they do. And anyway, they did that, um, after athletes had been in a, in a, um, combative environment and so
0: after how long after
1: so uh yeah they did they did a baseline before and then they did it after as well Uh, which is good the the problem though obviously is that it's difficult to gauge how much trauma they incurred um before a knockout uh whether there was a knockout or not and then if they're uh, making conclusions based on a choke related outcome oftentimes they also were getting Um, uh, uh, taking blunt trauma to the head as well. And that's the main confounder. We actually repeated a study similar to that. And we isolated just the choke arm and used a training environment and used exclusion criteria um, of any sort of head trauma, any symptoms of a past neurologic event or recent concussion um, and entered people into a choke or non-choke arm and used the same platform, but took out the confounders Um, and we also got a subject number, something in the range of six times, um, what they got. And that study is just actually completed in the last six months. And we submitted an abstract to one of the big sports medicine meetings in the, um, in the spring, this spring of 2023. And so we'll wait a little bit on the manuscript, but that manuscript will probably hit the, um, hit the internet sometime late 2023.
0: Oh, we can't wait. By the way, folks, if you're not research-based or familiar with it, the confounding variables or other factors that could play a role in the conclusion, so when you're looking at causation, um, I'm a big proponent of multiple paths of causation. Is usually what you're going to find. Um, that's something people don't always talk about, especially human beings like things simple. They like the one pill, the one thing. <laughs> it doesn't always work that way when you're looking for causal relationships, and uh, that's why I was asking. Dr. to about that because it's going to be hard to separate those things between head trauma, punches, elbows. And then all of a sudden, Oh yeah, it was the RNC. It was the rear naked choke that did it. So I can't wait to read your study coming out in 2023 as well. And it doesn't mean it doesn't do it. I have no idea. Now on that particular assessment that they did, it sounds like they're also checking out the prefrontal cortex because that sounds like problem solving in some capacity. Um, I don't know how familiar you are in that regard, but am I off on that?
1: No, you're not off, not off at all. It's sort of the, it's, it's obviously a multimodal thing because in order to, in order to read a number sequence, you're testing something in order to understand what you're looking at, you're testing another thing. And then in order to express what you're seeing and understanding is another thing. And, and so it's not just testing one thing. It's sort of an overall an overall cognitive assessment. Um so it's not perfectly clean testing one thing, but it's sort of an overall um, like visual and cognitive and uh, and expressive type of type of test. and it it probably frankly, there are probably some drawbacks to it. There are now more advanced ways to to look uh, at sideline assessments in terms of concussion and stuff, uh, stuff that is slightly less less subjective. Um, like testing involuntary eye movements and and that sort of thing. There's some companies working on really advanced things um, along those lines.
0: I wonder if the results would be the same six months down the line. I wonder if you can even improve because there's so many questions, right? It's research for right. you. <laughs> more questions than answers um, in regards to the rear naked choke. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. we know we talked about this extensively before we uh, were on the show. What are some of the myths out there you want to dispel? Because I know people get this confused a lot with the choke, where you're pla- placing your um, your ulna, or actually sure, your radius, against somebody's uh, windpipe or their trachea, and they don't—that doesn't seem to be the same.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So the rear naked choke, if executed properly, is um, is a choke that uh, you you get your arm essentially under um, underneath someone's chin such that the, um, the inside of your elbow, the, the, um, the actual joint itself is essentially frontline. So that one side of your arm, your forearm is compressing on one side of the neck. And then your bicep, your upper arm is compressing on the other side of the neck, um, with your, your hand and arm interlocking and some pressure being applied at the base of the back of the head. Um, and so it's, It's a, uh, it should be anyway, a relatively clean bilateral, lateral to medial compression uh, Mm -hmm. on the side, compressing all structures. Um, When you do something like that, that sort of technically strangulation, you're compressing all structures in the neck, but you're compressing the, um, the pressure is coming on the lateral side rather than the front, rather than on the windpipe, like isolating the windpipe. The goal being um, compressing the vascular structures to um, to make somebody not have blood flowing to their brain so that they either tap or nap. Um, That is in contrast to the what you're describing, the sort of um, the old school like arm bar, um, like short arm grip choke, applying pressure with the forearm to the front of the neck, which would be more of like an airway pin um and you can you can obviously compress all structures that way it can be an effective uh choke but uh, it's not going to be as clean unconsciousness is not going to happen as quick um, because you're dependent on airway obstruction which can take a long time um and it also takes more force to compress the trachea than it does the vascular structures especially the jugular veins um you're you're also uh exposing the person that you're applying it to to a higher risk of injury uh, with that sort of restraint or choke. and the rear naked when applied in a fight scenario, a competition scenario, it's not always perfect. the elbows not always cleanly in front sometimes it's on the side sometimes there's some twisting and I understand that. but as it's described and as we train it, um it is as as I as I described it earlier as opposed to on uh, an, like an airway compression sort of thing um, and you'll hear me you'll hear me use I generally use the common Um, the common linguistics of the, of the fight community, the combatives community. I, I generally use the term choke when I'm describing these medically, um, the, uh, the most apt description is strangle or strangulation. That is just compression from the outside of the neck, uh, vascular or other, just all, all comers, uh, compression of the neck as opposed to choking, which technically is obstruction of the airway from the inside. Um, you hear people say, well, this is a blood choke or an airway choke. And I don't mind that description because it's sort of more clear. It describes what your goal is. Um, technically it's or strangulation. There are some relatively, um, pedantic, uh, folks within the grappling community that are very, uh, um, very focused on making sure people use strangle instead of choke. And that's fine too. I just, I don't get lost in the linguistics as long as, as long as people understand what I'm talking about.
0: And that's true. And I think the legal profession calls them a vascular restraints. Something of that sort yeah.
1: Of yeah. Vascular compression or vascular restraint. There's lots of different names. And that's why in, in that sort of realm, um, either the forensic world, legal world um, it's, it's really best to pair it with an anatomic description of what occurred or what's occurring as opposed to just using one term and going with it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love it when disciplines are changing the name for the same thing, just to make it a little bit more complicated for everybody else. <laughs> right? Let me ask you this. Um, this kind of leads me to the next question, which I've seen a lot of martial art instructors talk about this. And this is not a knock on them. Sometimes they just hear stories and they kind of regurgitate the story. And I get it. Um, but they used to say, hey, you can't hold somebody... In a rear naked choke for longer than a minute i think i've even heard a minute or two because it could be lethal it could Mm -hmm. be fatal to that individual is that accurate
1: it's possible the so this is something um this is something that people refer to things as though there's a perfect answer to this question and um i I mean oftentimes folks who know a lot more about a topic are more open to the gray area of the of the research and there's not a perfect answer to that question and for a couple reasons one is the the data that drives how long it takes someone to have that sort of terrible outcome from a net compression is again it's it's in general not prospective data certainly not prospective blinded data and a lot of it is observational um, from Mm -hmm. either security footage and um, and from other assessment, like witness assessment in the forensic world. And we know, obviously, if you apply a neck compression very lightly for a very brief amount of time, you're not going to have that sort of outcome. If you fully locked somebody for 10 minutes and cut off all, all blood supply, everyone would have a bad outcome. So somewhere in between no time and Ten minutes, you know that there's going to be a cutoff where most people have a bad outcome. It's it seems like the forensic literature lands at somewhere between two and four minutes as as being a, a cutoff for um, for having a high probability of a bad outcome, um, brain death, and potentially actually um, actually uh, death. Now, the the difficult part about that is that you c- there is a small possibility of having a a, a bad outcome. Long before that, if you have an injury like an arterial dissection or a stroke, something like that, and that can occur at any point, not just two minutes, but that could happen at five seconds, 20 seconds. Um, it depends on the choke, depends on the individual, their risk factors, and their their luck. Um, dissections and strokes are common in society. They can happen for no reason. They can happen in all athletic activities. Um, obviously having neck compression or, or, getting choked is more risky than not. Um, but those things can occur in any setting. We also know they can occur in the context of neck compression and those can happen earlier than what you're describing the, the minute or two minutes or four minutes or whatever. But the forensic literature would, would point sort of, again, in a, with gray area recognized, they would softly point to in the mid single digit of minutes before your um, before most people will have a bad outcome like death
0: so if i'm correct when you're talking about the stroke uh, it's not necessarily induced by the choke it could be just bad luck at the timing or something of that nature
1: it could be yeah you know there there have been a number of strokes and uh, arterial dissections both carotid and vertebral associated with, uh, net compression maneuvers applied in the context of grappling. Um, we, we just published a, a 10 patient case series, um, all jujitsu athletes, all who had a, a close temporal relationship between being choked and having some sort of either ischemic stroke or dissection. Um, and the, the temporal relationship is really compelling in those cases. Um, we got both personal accounts from Uh, from the folks involved, and also reviewed medical records, including imaging in those cases, that was the only way they would be included in the case series. We eliminated a number because we couldn't verify it completely. And we recognize even those could have, it could have just been their time for a stroke or dissection. It just is fairly compelling from a a time relationship that that it's uh, associated. And just again, you, you pointed out what confounders are, to your audience, but there's a difference when we use the term correlated or associated. That's different from causation. Um, And in that case series, we weren't claiming causation, but we were claiming
0: correlation. That's a great point too. Something I always tell my class. Folks, there's websites out there that show a lot of correlations to things that make no sense. High divorce rates with high sales of butter in Massachusetts. I mean, sometimes correlations are Just there because they're there, and it doesn't mean they're actually something happening, it doesn't mean it's not, it also doesn't mean it is. Um, now I gotta, I'm gonna explore this a little bit more in depth. Just three questions popped up in my head as we were talking, uh, just to kind of get more insight into this aspect Does age matter,
1: um, in terms of stroke risk or or risk yeah. overall?
0: Strict or stroke risk or risk overall for rear naked choke? I'm 51. Um, should I avoid being choked out?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, so again, uh, being choked is less safe than not being choked, right? <laughs> yeah. So that being said, probably the risk increases with age, but the stroke risk and dissection risk uh, in general, independent of submission grappling, increases with age. Um, we looked, in fact... We looked at, at this in a recent study. Again, this is another one that's just finished. Data is collected and we've submitted an abstract, but the manuscript isn't out yet. We looked at, um, at a study using long-time grapplers, so people who had been exposed to many more than 500 chokes. That was our cutoff. No one who had been exposed to less than that could participate. But we looked at the thickness of a portion of the wall of the carotid artery that we know as a medical community is, uh, is tied to stroke risk. It's called the CIMT or carotid intima media thickness. And as that gets thicker, your stroke risk goes up, especially, uh, after a certain point. And we also know that that particular, uh, portion of the wall of the carotid increases with age. So your CIMT is more now than it was when you were 20. Um, and that's, thank you that's, that's one of many risk factors for stroke. Um, and like different, different lifestyle factors and that sort of thing that we all know about smoking, et cetera, play into that. Um, but we looked at the CIMT thickness in, um, in long time grappling athletes and age, uh, age and uh, weight matched them with a control group who had never been exposed to neck compression at all, and looked at the same thing to see if, uh, if long time grapplers who had been choked many times had increased thickness in that risky portion of your, uh, of your carotid artery. And the, the spoiler alert is that there was no difference, um, in the long, long time grapplers versus the controls who had been also athletically active, but not, um, not participated in any form of submission grappling, um, Interesting. and yeah, it, it, as it turns out, it was the same. We also, uh, in the study, we used a bunch of the new age, um, uh, serum markers for concussion that you've seen referenced in different, um, especially in the context of football, boxing, these uh, different head injury contexts. And that was more of a pilot portion because we have no idea what we were going to find from that. Um, there was no difference in those serum markers of brain injury either. Um, but we also don't aren't really drawing conclusions on that because again they're very new and we don't really know what we're working with it was more just an an exploration that's fascinating
0: nonetheless yeah
1: but yeah so in, in short age probably matters but we don't know how much
0: so okay and i guess in any sport or any kind of physical activity they always recommend to make sure you see your doctor make sure you know your medical history because if you have heart conditions or if you have a history of heart conditions all that could be problematic and it increases your risk and this is actually if you being choked out right when you go unconscious correct
1: or i mean yeah <clears throat> the the being choked out may matter and i can come back come back to that but the the risk we were looking at is, uh, is mainly a uh, risk applicable to stroke. Mm. Um, so ischemic stroke, the blood being cut off, um, in the brain for various reasons. Um, the being choked out is interesting because, um, the, the question arises, is it, is it bad to be choked out? And it seems like that should be an intuitive answer. Like it's, it's bad to be choked unconscious, but, um, interestingly, the data on brief loss of consciousness from a neck compression doesn't really support that, that it makes for any worse outcomes than people not choked unconscious. Um, there's not good data on it, but there is retrospective data. And then there's, uh, um, some broad-based survey data. We did a a survey. We actually surveyed over 4,000 grapplers, um, Oh, wow. got a bunch of demographic information from them how what sport they participated in how often they've been choked um if they have any remnant symptoms that they attribute to a choke and there was no difference in that outcome bad or good uh whether they had been choked unconscious or not um hmm. and that just that sort of survey again this is sort of taking a step back, like looking from the 30,000 foot view on survey data in general, there's oftentimes healthy subject bias in a survey like that, because if there was a terrible outcome and someone died, they're not participating in the survey, just to point out the obvious. But um, in that group, over a third of the participants had, had been choked more than 500 times and um, roughly a quarter of them had uh, reported being choked unconscious. So over a thousand of the participants had been choked unconscious. Um, there was actually only two bad outcomes, uh, like remnant bad outcomes attributed to chokes out of the 4,000 participants. Um, and so it was, it was one of those healthy subject uh, biased surveys that at least within that survey said that that activity is remarkably safe, which uh, is, is relative commentary on the safety. Obviously there can be bad outcomes, but in general, it's, it's safe.
0: Fascinating stuff. Really fascinating stuff. Let me ask you this. Um, I think you kind of answered this already, uh, regards to blood pressure. Maybe, yeah, we kind of covered that. I'm looking at my notes, two questions here. One, maybe a little bizarre, maybe not Uh, Could choking. Um, or grappling, or wrestling, like collegiate wrestling, we see some of the collegiate wrestlers. Let me frame it this way. They have some huge necks, some of these guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not that easily choked either sometimes, it seems like. Could you actually develop a, a protective mechanism, a sense, or factor in your neck, either developing neck size or some capacity?
1: Yeah, so that is a, is a good question. <laughs> Um, so a couple of things about this for, so first of all, just in terms of like brain flow and brain oxygenation, cause that's the whole, the whole point of your blood flow is to, to bring stuff to the brain cells and take stuff away from the brain cells. And namely you're bringing oxygen in and new uh, nutrition, glucose, etc., to your brain cells. And you cut that off and then you have loss of consciousness. Um, so the question arises, can, uh, can your brain be conditioned? Can your neck be conditioned, et cetera, to be more resistant? So the answer is probably not, but maybe. So, um, <laughs> there's a study by Stacy et al. um, out of a lab in the UK This uh, it's this crazy cool, um, cerebral perfusion lab. They've done studies on a bunch of different types of athletes, but one of the studies in the last couple of years was on grappling athletes and, and they, they uh, essentially concluded that there may be sort of a like a permissive effect of having a long-term grappling experience as though there's some more efficient use of oxygen in the brain or if fit more efficient delivery of mm-hmm. oxygen to the brain it's a kind of complex study and the conclusion was real, uh, appropriately soft they didn't over conclude um, but that's an interesting one to look up stacy at all s t a c e y i think ben stacy definitely um, will and the, so the other thing though, is, um, a lot of the data. So the data showing how long it takes for someone to lose consciousness is old data. Um, and it's what, what I call compliant volunteer data. And I'm doing air quotes with my hands, um, because a lot of it's from the forties through eighties. And some of it is from the fifties and sixties out of the Kodokan in Japan where they essentially had white belts that they choked out while they were doing physiologic monitoring to them, relatively rudimentary, because this is like mid fifties through early sixties when they were doing this. Um, And I can't imagine it was perfectly voluntary, Um, but some of the other data that they did was again, pre IRB, pre -pre ethics. And um, I'm sure I can speak for you that neither you nor I support this sort of research, but it was done in prisons and psych inpatient hospitals, and the biggest study was Rosen R O S S E N at all from the forties, um, and there's over a hundred participants that they choked out with a mechanized device. Um, I'm getting eyebrow raises and stuff here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's
0: so crazy what we used to do.
1: <laughs> um, but Jesus. that that study um, studies like that were repeated in that era, the the forties through. 1980s and that's where a lot of our data on how long it takes to lose consciousness comes from prospective volunteer compliant however voluntary and compliant it was but none of those studies looked at people who had trained martial arts and none of those studies were prospective and allowed for the people who had trained to be actively trying to fight that maneuver so we did, uh, we did a study looking at what we thought was the best representation of that exact population, which is the UFC. So we reviewed, I had a panel of, I think it was 17 experts, experts in grappling, a number of whom had medical expertise as well. I had them review um, every single choke to loss of consciousness in UFC history. At that time, I think it was 81 of them. And they, they marked the time that they felt the choke was locked in. Like this is, this is the fight ending choke and this is inescapable. So they marked that time. And, um, and then they marked the time that they felt the person lost consciousness. Sometimes that's very easy. Um, they're fighting, 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 and then their arm flops to the side, that sort of thing. But each panelist identified each time mark, start to end choke, start and loss of consciousness on every single one of those chokes to loss of consciousness, and as it turns out, the average time to loss of consciousness in that group was about nine seconds, with a fairly narrow 95% confidence interval, something like eight to ten seconds, um, included two standard deviations on on either side. Now, the reason that's remarkable is, first of all, nobody's produced data like that before. It sort of answers the question of how how long does it actually take loss of conscience to occur when you're fighting and you have training and a lot of experience in this sort of maneuver. The other remarkable thing is that number, nine seconds, is right in the meat of the, of the range produced by all of the prior compliant volunteer study. Oh. And so the question of can you condition, this is yeah wheeling back to your initial question, can you condition yourself maybe to fight off the choke, to defend it, to get out of it, to make it not a clean choke in the first place. But once it's locked in the time to loss of consciousness in the most highly trained athletes that we know of in the world, in this realm is exactly the same as someone not fighting it at all.
0: That's interesting. And I guess it also makes me think of that. I don't know what you'd call it. um, It's a defense that they use usually for choking where they kind of get this kind of gill-looking thing in your neck, right? You kind of mm-hmm. open your mouth wide and spread that neck out. Does that really have much of an impact? Do you, have you seen anything like that? in the study? it's a
1: if it's a, <clears throat> if it's a bad choke by someone who doesn't know what they're doing, then I'm sure it helps. Um, and maybe it's enough to to begin an escape. Um, all of us probably do it to a certain extent: bury your chin, etc. But once the choke is locked, it doesn't it doesn't matter.
0: I guess a couple other questions that pop up is. I was choked out on a go-go platter, mm-hmm. but I remember as I was starting to feel the pressure because he was slowly applying it, and it was totally unintentional, it was just an accident that happened, I had my hand ready to tap. I was going, okay, okay, I wanted to feel that go-go platter, and I'm, I'm starting to feel it, and then before I could tap, I passed out, <laughs> and the guy's like, I saw you getting ready to tap, but you never tapped, I don't know what happened. But then the instructor said, well, it's a gradual process. You don't just, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen just like that. You slowly start losing. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, and so go-go plot is interesting. And your experience is, is common to experience yeah. most people losing consciousness where it's this sort of, I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm going to get out. I think I'm going to get out. And then you wake up.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, that's how it happens most often, especially as you sort of push the envelope to try to work your escapes to these various maneuvers. You you have to kind of walk that line a little bit in order to to figure out how long you have to escape uh, and that sort of thing. And the Go Go plot is interesting because it can be uh, so what we're describing, you can Google the the maneuver, but it's a it's a position very common to like 10th planet jujitsu in terms of like their home base of of where their arms and legs are and how they're securing someone when they're on top of them in their in their guard. But because it's the leg sort of pinning the shoulder and the the foot coming up, it depends on where the where the joint itself sits in relation to the front of the neck, uh, how much pressure it's putting on either side of the neck, if that makes if that makes sense. Um, and the go-go plata, frankly, is one of those that oftentimes people don't even know what's happening and then they pass out because it's not a very common choke, even among uh, advanced jiu-jitsu practitioners. Um but so if you have a perfectly applied choke, perfect compression, hard compression, bilateral, and from uh, from outside to inside on both sides of the neck, you can lose consciousness as fast as just a handful of seconds, three to six seconds. It could happen. Right. Some of the loss of consciousness that occurs though is out as far as 20 or 30 seconds. And that's where you end up with that average of just under 10 seconds. And it depends on what's being compressed. So this is getting into the weeds. If if we're okay getting into the physiologic weeds a little bit,
0: let's do it. Um,
1: so if if you compress someone's neck, the first thing that that uh, of importance anyway that's being compressed is the jugular veins. You can compress the jugular veins with very little pressure. And for um for medical practitioners, if you've ever looked at at someone's neck under an ultrasound, especially if you're trying to put like a central line into the jugular vein. You can test what's compressible and what's not with an ultrasound probe and with very little pressure, you can compress fully someone's jugular vein. Meanwhile, the carotid artery, which sits oftentimes right behind it, is just being displaced. It's not being compressed at all because the wall is thicker. It's a stronger structure. So you can fully compress the jugular vein. The carotid will just displace medially, like toward the midline when you do that. So As you start compressing someone's neck, the first thing that gets compressed is the jugular veins. So when you do that, when you compress the jugular veins, you're not allowing blood to go back out of the head, out of the brain. And so gradually, the intracranial pressure will go up if you keep their their jugular arteries compressed without compressing their carotid arteries. As the intracranial pressure goes up, the blood pressure from the body that's trying to get blood into the brain into the head it's pumping against that intracranial pressure so if the intracranial pressure is very high less blood flow will go into the brain so you can actually reduce blood flow through the carotids by fully occluding the venous system the jugulars and this is like it's a funny argument driven by a ton of bro science of you gotta (sighs) compress the carotids only you gotta compress the jugulars as though they're independent but As, as you compress the the neck first, the jugulars will compress. If you push very hard, you can start to actually compress the carotids. Most chokes in actuality, probably most almost completely occlude the jugulars and partially occlude the carotids. That's probably most chokes, but because you're increasing the intracranial pressure initially and then compressing the carotids limiting the mean arterial pressure going to the head by compressing the carotids too, that leads to less cerebral perfusion pressure. And I I use that term because if you have anybody who's listening, who's who's interested in physiology, studying it, but that's essentially the equation for is blood going to the brain. Cerebral perfusion equals mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure. So if you make the mean arterial pressure smaller, by compressing the carotids, or increase the intracranial pressure by compressing the jugulars, either one and both of those things will reduce the cerebral perfusion pressure. And we we have a range of cerebral perfusion pressure where we can think normally, behave normally, act normally, feel normally. If you get below that is when you start getting lightheaded. And if you're below that too long, that's when you'll lose consciousness. So the whole goal of a, of a neck compression maneuver is to lower the cerebral per- perfusion pressure. It's the whole point, but you can do that in a couple different ways. Um, first jugular compression will happen. And then sometimes carotid compression will happen. If the choke is perfect, you'll compress both.
0: That's a perfect explanation. That was great. I think anybody could understand that. Well, you You dictated that. That's really good. Um, cpp i guess you guys have an acronym for that uh in your line of work you guys have acronyms for everything yeah yeah um that's fascinating so is i i guess they all work on the same premise it seems like most of them darts chokes uh, triangle chokes rear naked is there really a difference between them or is it just the degree of pressure that you can apply or anything at all that you see there
1: yeah so i thought there would be so we Hmm. in that ufc study that we looked at all 81 chokes to unconsciousness we also broke it down by two things one is each individual choke type um and the other thing we broke it down uh is into neck only or arm in chokes so neck only would be like the rear naked the bulldog the north south choke uh the traditional guillotine not the non arm in guillotine um and then, so these were just obviously UFC fights, so there was oh, no lapel,
0: no lapel um, chokes, no lapel involvement. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so then the arm in chokes would be the the traditional head and arm chokes. So, the like the traditional head and arm, the arm in guillotine, dars, anaconda, uh, traditional triangle, arm triangle, etc. So I thought there would be a difference because in in practice it feels less clean when you have an arm in choke. As opposed to uh, uh, a neck only choke. It feels cleaner when someone has a perfect rear naked applied compared to like an arm in guillotine or an anaconda or something like that. But as it turns out, the data, at least on these chokes being locked in, um, there was no time difference in uh, loss of consciousness between the neck only and the arm in chokes. Now, the, the caveat is my hunch is that the arm in chokes are more escapable once they're locked in. And we lost that data set because we only looked at the ones that led to loss of consciousness. So we didn't look at how many rear nakeds were locked in and were escaped versus how many Darces were locked in and ultimately escaped. So there's a little bit of, of skew to that, but at least the ones that led to loss of consciousness, once they were locked in, there was no time difference between those groups.
0: I mean, I could keep you here for hours with this conversation. <laughs> this conversation we're wrapping up soon. <clears throat> Folks, again, you know what to do. Share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know, it makes me also think about leg chokes. I, not, I know they're not called leg chokes, but for the case of argument, uh, since we don't have video, like a triangle choke that you use with your legs, and sometimes people call triangle chokes. You can also do triangle chokes with just your arms and the side control, things of that nature. But uh, leg uh, triangle choke, I'm also thinking, of again, back to the go-go plata, things of that nature. Did you see there? Or would you, did you even see it at all?
1: Yeah. So same, same thing. There was same no thing? difference in time oh. from, um, uh, between the, I would consider those that you just described, especially like the traditional triangle, um, that would be considered an arm in choke and, uh, triangles individually, like separated as just a, a, a single choke type and arm in chokes in general, there was no difference in, in time. And again, my hunch is that there were many triangles that would be considered locked in, that either the, either the bell rang, saved by the bell sort of thing, or um, they were escaped outright and the fight continued. I suspect there were more of those in that Armin group. I don't know that, though, because that was, again, lost as part of the data set.
0: I have two more questions. I guess the other one, the steroids play a role. we starting, I'm starting to see, and maybe it's always been there. I know it's been there before in the beginning of UFC, <laughs> and I see it again now in competitions too. But we know steroids can do a lot with the cardiovascular system. Um, mm-hmm. Any information at all on that?
1: No, nothing, nothing conclusive at all. Nothing related to, to ultimate brain outcomes of long term transient, like many transient choking effects or loss of consciousness.
0: Okay. And I guess, This question, I think, I'm trying to see how I phrase this carefully, (laughs) because you may not have an answer for it, which is perfectly fine, because I know there's a lot of controversy with the chokes in certain areas. Um, You made the point earlier in the the interview about it's better probably not to be choked out than to be choked out, which Mm -hmm. I get, right? It's a lot of things, Uh, but people can have physiological or health issues working out. They can have issues with CrossFit. They can have issues sprinting. We've seen people who have had heart attacks while jogging, marathons. You know, unfortunately, activity can do that, especially if you're not conditioned. Are the odds of a a severe health risk, in your opinion, uh, low, very low, moderate when it comes to these jokes?
1: I mean, yeah. So this is more opinion because the denominator is tough to get at. We're talking yeah. about uh, millions and millions of net compression attempts per year, um, hundreds of thousands a day worldwide, and the amount of bad outcomes is still low enough to name. I mean, you can publish a case series on bad outcomes because oh, wow. it's a rare enough outcome, right? So the when you publish a case series, then the the next question is, what's the denominator? How risky is this truly? And certainly, there's some risk. I think the risk is exceedingly low, um, but we don't know what we don't know what that means exactly. Is it one in a million? Is it one in a hundred thousand? Is it lower than that? Um, I think that's the general like ballpark range of these sorts of things. Just because anyone who gets at as far advanced as five years or so into grappling has been ex- exposed to hundreds of choke attempts. And the amount of people that have had a bad outcome from a choke attempt, even in in a gym environment where you have a ton of people coming through, it's it's still really rare. It's possible, and people may listen to this and say, "Well, I know I, I had a buddy who had a bad outcome, or whatever," and that may be the case. But we don't have the denominator pinned down. That's something we're still working on. Um, but I would say, I mean, in the range of of descriptors you you offered, I would say the risk is very low but present.
0: And folks, again, um, I hope you understand this comment that I'm going to make to some individuals. If somebody does have an unfortunate situation because of a choke, or you've been choked a hundred times and nothing has ever happened. Those are anecdotal. They can provide data, but it's not really a big enough sample. A sample of one or two doesn't give us a whole lot. unfortunately, And if you have lost anybody because of a choker, obviously my sympathies, but we have to remember that um, when you do these research studies, you're looking at a lot of different people, as as doctor Selflug said earlier, with 4,000 grapplers and looking at them, that's a big sample size. And you're going to get much more accurate data than anecdotes, which are stories of other people. I've heard my third cousin's fourth uncle kind of thing, and you have to be careful with that. Um, So hopefully that makes sense. And I didn't say that. a in tactful way you know it's a fascinating conversation because it's, it's such a fascinating sport and it's such so much there's really a lot dearth in research when it comes to almost anything i mean i love to see anybody start doing research on heel hooks and and acls and, and all that stuff and see well, what, what does it really do how bad is this thing um i don't think there is anything have you seen anything on that heel hook? how much
1: there's there's some good injury profile surveys overall but nothing focusing in like this on another aspect of of a particular submission attempt.
0: And I think you and I, I think you would agree, both of us know that as the sport gets bigger and there's more, as they say, greenbacks involved, (laughs) then eventually research will start catching up and people will say, oh, well, we have a lot of interest out there. We can get funding for this research. And I get the funny feeling we'll see more research as as MMA grows more and more.
1: Hopefully that's the case.
0: Because it's definitely growing. I mean, I, I can't even believe how much it's growing right now. It's phenomenal. Well, Dr. Stealth-Luke, thank you so much for doing this. I truly appreciate it.
1: Of course. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, I wasn't sure I didn't ask you, but is there anything else you wanted to let the folks know about that you said, you know what, I really want people to understand this or that, or do we cover everything to your satisfaction? I mean, the,
1: the topic is so deep, obviously. Um, I think we covered a lot of the aspects that we that we could, and there's more to discuss in in this realm, and obviously, I, I mean, this this segues into the forensic realm and also into the law enforcement and military combatives realm and those discussions are are deep as well both in terms of in terms of physiology and application and in terms of ethics and and then appropriate medical care um, but i think i mean in terms of the the broad base application within the sportive the combat sports um, context i think we covered a lot of a lot of what we should
0: is it safe to say rule of thumb should be, if you're getting choked out, tap before you get yeah, choked out. Yeah, I mean,
1: out. if you have any submission being applied to you and you think you think it's in, just tap and go again. I mean, yeah. all of us are here to train and we all want to be able to train the next day and the next day after that. And the best way to do that is to be safe, both as someone applying a submission and someone taking a submission
0: great point thanks again and thank you for listening everybody hey make sure to share subscribe hit that like button you know we like it and tap would you just tap lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess Uh aha
1: in my dentist's office more than once actually
0: do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell